A lot of this is about education, it's about cultural change, it's about behavioural change. Just as COVID is dealt with at the moment, not by, by, by a vaccine, sadly, yet, but by behavioural change, just as climate change is largely about, is as much about behavioural change uh, as technology, so it will be about the circular economy. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. In a post-COVID-19 world, who can afford to care about the environment? If New Zealand, along with the rest of the world, is plunged into recession and we're carrying thousands of unemployed workers and digging deep into savings just to put food on the table, is now the right time to worry about the environment? Yes, say Sir Peter Gluckman and Anne Bardsley of Koi2, the Centre for Informed Futures. Their fourth white paper on life after COVID is called the environment is now. It argues that there's a pressing need for a more overt and integrated framing of sustainability and that the post-COVID stimulus needs to actively consider environmental and climate change impacts and not lead us down an unsustainable path into the future. I'm joined by Sir Peter and Anne now. Welcome to this climate business. Afternoon, Vincent. Thanks for having us. Well, before we get into that very gnarly question, and tell us a little bit about Koi2 and about these white papers you've been producing. Well, Koi2 is a, a new nonpartisan independent think tank and research centre hosted by the University of Auckland. Uh, we look at long-term, quite complex questions at the interface of science and research and policy, but we look at them from a lot of different perspectives and try to get as many uh, different voices to the table to understand these these issues. And these papers that you've produced, this is the third in the series, I understand. Yes. Is it the third? Um, we've, we started with a, I think it's the fourth. Oh, the fourth. We've, we've, we started with an overarching paper called The Future Is Now, and that just arose from a discussion with a, a, some of our, our key opinion leaders that we are connected with and some other uh, strategic thinkers that we gathered into a Zoom room for a number of conversations that, that resulted in, in that first paper, The Future Is Now, which laid out a whole broad range of issues facing New Zealand in a, in a post-COVID world. Um, and these are a lot of issues that we've been thinking about in the centre anyway, and there, there are trends that we've been looking at that seem to have new emphasis in the current environment. Mm. Uh, how many would you expect to have in the series? Because I think if you've got food, it's probably coming after this. Yes, we've had many discussions with food industry leaders and other stakeholders and scientists in that um, area. So we have a food paper coming out soon. We've also Already, as you've mentioned, we've done a few. We've, we've had a short paper on social cohesion. We have one coming out on the situation and mental health and mental well-being. Uh, we have a few others on the go as well that we're starting in the, in the 
future of education and also in New Zealand's economic future, which will be a little further down the line because it's quite a complex area. So let's go to this question then, and, and this is one for you, Sir Peter, this pressing need to integrate the environment into our planning. I suspect many people would regard investing in the environment right now as an indulgence that perhaps we can't afford and people should come first. People in the environment intimately linked, Vincent. And I think that's the point. If we're going to think about the long-term future of New Zealand, we need to think about its people, its environment, and the economy in an integrated way. Too much of our thinking has been singular, short-term, magic bullet approach. And what's needed, and if you talk to the business leaders around the world, they're all saying sustainability and resilience are the new catchwords. We need to pick up on that and do it ourselves. It would be tragic if we just took a short-term response rather than realising that part of the business brand, the economic brand for New Zealand into the future, but also of our psychological brand moving into the future, is not uh, to think about sustainability in everything we do. Uh, I'll give you a, a very specific example. Shane Jones, the Minister for Regional Development this week, was very dismissive of the idea that these shovel-ready projects would have any kind of green or sustainability element to them. It was cast as a, a luxury in a very dismissive sort of way. So if you were looking at investing in the infrastructure projects for these shovel-ready projects, what does that mean for you to have a green or a sustainability focus on them? And, and maybe get as specific as you like. Well, these projects are going to be around New Zealand for a long time. Uh, there are important projects to build our infrastructure, which does need building. But if we don't think now about how that infrastructure will contribute to New Zealand's future, we, we're making bad planning decisions. And there's, I understand and agree with the urgency of getting people back to work. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that it's got to be the right things done for the right purposes. How specific are you prepared to get, Anne, in this report regarding, say, for instance, transport? There's been discussion about the investment in roading as, I suppose, uh, we have enough roads and the emphasis now should be on rail and on transforming our transport system to electric vehicles and electrifying public transport and, and investing in other modes such as cycling and walking. Do you have a view on roads versus the rest? Well, our report doesn't get into specifics about that. It definitely raises transport as a major issue. And we need to be thinking about where this goes in the long term. Uh, in the long term, it's not about, um, it, it will be about electrifying the, the, the fleet, but that's, that's down the line. And, and our report is, is just raising that issue that be considered in these, in these types of projects. It doesn't mean we stop dealing with our roads at all. And right now we jump onto uh, moving everything electric, but the, the projects that are being put forward now need to think about the long-term future because they will put us on a path that is hard to get off of. I mean, it's just to use an example, Vincent, roads are not the issue. The issue is what drives on the roads. And if we move faster to electric vehicles, uh, if we move faster to understanding how the transport system 
moves, then roads may well be part of that solution, given the geographical nature of New Zealand. So I think this is the point of the paper, to say there needs to be integrated planning rather than just one-off planning. We need now to be thinking about how, when we, given that we are capable of having uh, good renewable energy to 100% in New Zealand, how do you actually use that to create a transport system for all the players in New Zealand, given the reality of our geography? And that's going to involve roads. It's not going to not involve roads. It's just what's on those roads. I think your point is that there isn't a magic bullet solution and we just say the answer is move right now to everything being electric. It's a process and there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. There's not one, one simple answer to these complex I mean, questions. Too much of this scene of this issue has been placed in singular solutions and I think a lot of what we're talking about here is taking a systems approach, saying how does our well-being, our environment and our economy, our culture and our society move in parallel towards some set of goals that we set for New Zealand as a country with a sustainable environment, a sustainable society and a sustainable uh, economic picture. And it's the danger that's gone on here is too much single point. Uh, New Zealand is very good at tactical decision making. We make decisions for the short term. We've got to get better at making decisions for the long term. So I don't think there'd be many people that would disagree with that. But what does that actually mean in practice? It means in practice thinking about the long term and our policy planning, trying to remove as much of the partisanship from the decision-making so we don't get into yo-yo decision-making on, on various matters. It needs finding a national consensus and setting goals at the level of government in the way we are doing now with the Climate Change Commission such that all the players, local council, central government, NGOs, private sector, private individuals, all understand where we're going. At the moment, that consensus doesn't really exist. It, 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 it doesn't have a set of goals. I mean, we all know about the disconnect between local and central government. That's very obvious to many people. It's one of the roadblocks that needs to be removed. It keeps coming up in every discussion we have, these roadblocks in the different layers of government and decision-making. And those are the kinds of issues that need to be resolved if you want to move forward. I was amazed when I was working in the, for the for three prime ministers in a row, the level of siloing between government departments and the reality is so much of the decision-making is short-term. It has to be because of a three-year political cycle mm. and New Zealand's public service does not have a depth of long-term thinking. They may want it, but they can't have it. What would be the mechanism for that kind of discussion or... Uh, you know, cross cross party, but also cross government discussion. Are you, have, do you have a solution for how you might, I don't know, create a forum for that kind of planning? And I suggested that in our report. That's one of the, the possible recommendations uh, that would support the, for example, the Kaitiaki role of the secretary for the environment. But we, it was very clear in our discussions that. Uh, there was a there was a desire and a, a, a 
an incentive to, for these, these different groups of stakeholders to have a, a, an overarching type of commission that would be responsible, removed, removed from government and removed from the political cycle, to, uh, such as a sustainable, sustainability commission or an environmental forum. Or both. Uh, or both, to oversee uh, the work in the long term, in, sort of in, in the way that the Climate Change Commission is removed from political cycles. So this would be in addition to the Climate Change Commission? I think so, because I think sustainability is across every aspect of New Zealand uh, society and activity. I mean, we, we just you hear repeatedly about many activities going on in duplication with gaps, for instance, the science system does not reflect what's needed in the environmental sector. NGOs are doing some bits in the absence of knowledge that would help them make better decisions. Local counties, central government, we've talked about. So I think that having a commission that would set some overall views of New Zealand's long-term uh, uh, vision would be very useful. But equally, I think there needs to be a regular forum where the different participants and players from government, uh, NGOs, private sector get together. There's an awful lot of miscommunication and misinformation out there. And I think just getting everybody to understand each other would be a major step forward in moving New Zealand towards a sustainable future. There are a lot of activities going on and a lot of goodwill to do this in the private sector and NGOs uh, and even in the government but it isn't coordinated. And, and a commission or a, and, and a forum could be the mechanism through which those, those types of activities are, are coordinated for maximum effect. Because right now we have a lot of little things going on that don't, don't, don't contribute enough to the overall vision. You talked in the paper uh, a lot about the sustainable development goals. Are these not already baked into, th these are the goals that are uh, 21 or 16? Uh, 17. And that's highlight the problem, Vincent. I know the name, I can't remember the number. Here we have the International Agenda for Sustainability, New Zealand as a party, which covers every aspect of human, of, of economic, cultural, social and environmental sustainability. It's complex. A lot of it's altruistic in the sense of long-term vision. But the fact that the framing is only used by us in foreign aid and not used domestically is amazing to me. Here we have the best roadmap for what or could be developed into an integrated roadmap. The wellbeing budget, the living standards framework all have elements of it, but they're about short-term Budgets are about the next year or at the most the next three or four years. And if you look at the wellbeing budget and the living standards framework, they have elements of a holistic approach, but there's large elements that are missing. Large, large elements that are missing. Well, the sustainable development goals was to integrate these, these different dimensions of human ambition and ambition for the planet and so forth. We failed to use it effectively in New Zealand that, you know, as you don't recognise how many there are, uh, they're not mentioned in New Zealand. Some businesses use them, Fonterra reports against them, uh, but in general we don't use them, despite all the effort that that sets the international agenda in this space. The wellbeing budget has elements, as I've said. If you look at the living standards framework, 
and the natural capital, the amount of measurements we make are minimal on the environmental front as opposed to on those of a more, shall we say, immediate political front. So mm. there's a lot that can be done here by actually accepting where the incredible amount of work that's been done around the world on sustainability could be incorporated to New Zealand thinking. I think it's important also to note that the sustainable development goals, people think about sustainability and then I think they first think about environmental sustainability, which is the main focus of this report. But we make the point that sustainability is a, a holistic um, concept and the sustainable development goals make that really clear. It's a lot about um, social factors mm. and poverty reduction and those types of things. So that's how we have to think about sustainability, that all these things uh, intersect and interact with each other. You also mention in the paper, uh, you refer to the circular economy or the, the so-called donut, donut economy, which uh, has had some traction here in New Zealand and I believe has been adopted by the, the city of Amsterdam. Uh, is that also a, uh, a theoretical framework that you would like to see applied in New Zealand? Well, I'm not sure it's theoretical. It's a reality. I mean, waste management, which is really what we're talking about, and recycling of material has got to be at the heart of moving from disposable uh, consumerism to responsible consumerism. And so, you know, I think the Ministry of Environment is already doing a lot of good work in that area. Uh, the late Rob Fennick, of course, was doing a lot of good work in that area. I mean, I think that there is a lot of potential here and as resources get more and more difficult in some areas, as, uh, as the costs of waste disposal grow and the consequences of it grow, we, we should be looking far more at the issues as an island state of what we can do in the circular economy. Now, it's complicated. There are areas where it's much easier than other areas to work in. But that doesn't mean that the science and the technology should not be looked at and adopted as we can. It's also about behavioural change. I mean, an awful lot of this is not actually about, about the environment per se. It's actually of the actions of people interacting with the environment. And so a lot of this is about education, it's about cultural change, it's about behavioural change. Just as COVID is dealt with at the moment, not by a vaccine, sadly, yet, but by behavioural change, just as climate change is largely about, as much about behavioural change uh, as technology, so it will be about the circular economy. It's as much about what we produce, what its lifetime is, what its lifetime costs are, and how what we do when it does, does stop working, how we dispose of it and reuse what it's made of. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of thinking here, fundamental to where consumerism not just in New Zealand, but globally goes. Uh, in your paper, you talk about some key industries, tourism, uh, conservation, you talk about oceans and water. I wonder if you could give us a, a brief tour of, uh, let's just choose a couple of them to talk about what are the implications of what you're talking about for tourism? You know, it's a sector that we are hugely reliant on and have been devastated by COVID. What would happen with tourism if we looked at at it through the lens of um, of a better environmental management. Well, the Parliamentary Commission on the Environment has already pointed out in some of his work, as have some academics from Lincoln University, 
that the environmental footprint of high volume tourism in New Zealand is very, very high. If you talk to the, the staff of the Department of Conservation, they will make the same point about the impact of high volume tourism on the conservation estate. Now, the issue is we actually have largely marketed tourism as a volume exercise, high value exercise. And obviously there's a large diversity of people that come to New Zealand from very high-end tourists to backpackers and so forth. We need to think about how we move that balance from a high-volume, low-value-added to a higher-value-added, low-volume tourism. Now, that's not easy to do. It's easy to say it's not easy to do because it's about our tourist infrastructure. It's about how we employ people. It's about what people come to New Zealand to see. But ultimately, most people come to New Zealand to see its environment in one way or the other. So it, it, we have the parrots that high-volume tourism is compromising our environment. And um, you write about uh, water. Um, you know, the issues to do with water are quite profound. But what, what would be, I suppose, the first thing that a government could do about water, uh, particularly freshwater management? Well, just today, we've seen them put out the new freshwater strategy, which covers areas that have been talked about for a long time about fencing off waterways and whatnot in, in farms. And um, looking again at, at national bottom lines, the, the, net, the policy statement, national policy statement for freshwater, um, which, which has been done. And well, I haven't had a chance really to look through in detail mm. uh, what is new there. But that, that was a, an issue that is brought up in the paper that these national policy statements and national environmental standards need to be looked at. Uh, but there is a there is an issue with uh, the local and regional governments being able to actually enact those. And, there, and there's a lot of inc- there has been a lot of inconsistencies and and problems around the RMA that um, that get in the way of good freshwater management in this country. Mm. Whether these new um, the, the new strategy will how much that will help and and how different it's going to be, I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. I mean, my own view is that there are a few big issues in water that keep going into a too hard basket. One of those is who determines water rights, who owns water. Those, those two issues sort of, and we have the trivia white hanging issues, white hanging tribunal issues around water continuing unresolved. And that's a very hard issue, but sooner or later it will need to be addressed. The Mm. second issue is, and we're getting better and better at it, but we need to be clear about what we measure and where we measure it. So there's decent transparency over what's happening to water quality in different places in New Zealand. We measure in a relatively small number of places or in relatively infrequent ways. And I think uh, the first that we really do need better data, better access to data, more transparency in the data, and more understanding of what the data means. It's been used and misused by different groups on either side of the equation over the years, and we need to continue to work on the data collection and interpretation and accessibility of it. In regards to oceans, uh, you know, so much of the Hauraki Gulf in particular has suffered from overfishing, from pollution, from runoff, from 
development. It's such a complex area. Um, how would we begin to unpack that again? Is, it's, is it a cross-sector look? Uh, are there activities that really should be stopped to help restore, in, in particular, the, the Gulf, but also other parts of our, our ocean habitat? We did have discussions specifically about that that came up as an issue, as an example of how difficult it is to, if you don't have a, an overarching strategy and a coordination mechanism, how you actually get things done in an area like cleaning up the Hauraki Gulf. Uh, I mean, Peter, would you comment on that? Well, I mean, my view, Vincent, is this is a classic example. We have lots of people who know a lot about the Hauraki Gulf. There's a lot of research done. There's been a lot of, there's been the, the Hauraki Gulf groups, academia has been involved, there's a lot of parties involved. But at the end of the day, that information has not been systematically integrated in a way, then linked from the local bodies that are involved to central government. Because the Hauraki Gulf, what's, it, what's compromising? It's surrounded by a giant city, and a city that's growing rapidly which has an infrastructure that's not up to speed in terms of wastewater and so forth. We have the issues with what runs off the land into the Gulf, including plastics and sewerage and other things. We have the issues then of commercial fishing. We have the fact that the biggest port in New Zealand uses the Gulf. And we have the fact that there's some fantastic biodiversity in the greater Gulf that needs to be protected both in the marine life and in the bird life surrounding it. So there's an awful lot about this Gulf that's critical to New Zealand in both an economic, cultural and, and, and environmental sense. The data's there. The structures for actually making decisions about it are not there. There's not an integrated approach, integrated governance, an integrated integration of the different parties, all of whom have a stake in it, but all of whom actually have a stake to make it into a better place to be. And I think this is the issue that keeps coming through in all the work we've done around the environment. Lots of goodwill, lots of understandings, lack of integration, lack of integrating the different dimensions, and lack of integrating in a vertical sense from central government down to, to business, to regional government, local government, and through to individual citizens and NGOs. There's in good the end, world, this is, but not a structure. Yeah, and in the end, this has to land at somebody's desk. Somebody has to be responsible for Correct. doing this. Is there a, a ministry, a minister, a department that you think naturally is the inheritor of this? Should this be the vision that's adopted? Well, at a broader level, we actually raised the question in the report of whether there should be a minister for the oceans, because I do think that if we move outside the coastal area and think of our broader economic zone, the issues come between environment, conservation, fisheries. There's a broad number of ministries and defence. So there's a broad range of interests that are not that work actually in a rather disparate way. I think when it comes to the coastal waters, I think we do need to be clear, and that is one of the difficulties of the way government is structured now, where we have, I don't know how many ministries rather than being parameterly grouped into, with, under a senior minister for the environment or whatever. I think the commission we talk about could be a way to help nudge towards a more integrated system. But at the end of the day, government has to hold the can for setting the, the parameters under which all the other players operate. 
I think in the report I read exactly what I experienced, which was this delightful bird song that happened in my neighbourhood, and it sounded like it happened at yours too. Uh, and there was a moment there where we all, I think, collectively wondered if this was actually quite a nice place to be, this lockdown <laughs> experience of less pollution, less noise, uh, more bird song, and so forth. It, it sounds like what you're asking for is a little bit like a return to that state. Uh, am I perhaps – tell us about no, that I, experience for you. Well, I love – the lockdown I found a very rewarding experience. But put that aside, that, we're not going to live in lockdown. But I think it highlights the point that there are ways of living in urban environments where we can do better by ourselves and the environment. And one of the things that I think everybody is musing on, what has the lockdown taught us about what the future of the way people live and work in an urban environment should be? Uh, we're giving a lot of, I mean, there's a lot to be thought about. What does a healthy, smart city look like? Unfortunately, Auckland has not grown up to be a, a healthy, smart uh, city. It is what you would expect given its history of local bodies. So the issue now becomes is how do we take the observations made through the COVID lockdown and marry that with some aspirational views of how New Zealanders want to live their lives? And how do we do that to make cities like Amsterdam, like Copenhagen, which are actually focusing very much in their planning on thinking about what is a healthy city look like? What does it look like in terms of the people who live in it what does it look like for the biota that, that also live within that city? And so there's a lot that we can think about. Uh, we've started talking to Auckland City about that. What are the issues that might be on the, what could be achieved over a decade? This is not revolutionary stuff. This is evolutionary stuff. I mean, we know that change is slow, but it goes back to the old cliche. If you don't know where you're going, any road will do. And I think that's really what this point is about, is actually trying to suggest New Zealand needs to have a clear vision of what road it wants to go down. Mm. And what do you think might happen with your report and, you know, in your dream scenario, what, what happens when someone at the senior roles in government, I'm assuming it's government and in, and in councils, read your report, what happens next? Well, I mean, the, I think the message is pretty clear that, that there needs to be a strategy and that the environment can't be a sideline in that strategy. It's got to be uh, central to our thinking because we've only got one planet here and we've got to take care of it. We know that a lot of things we're doing are already reaching limits that and, and paths that we're on need to be thought about. So it's it's sending that message that uh, we need to find a way to do this better. We, we've seen, like you said, from the lockdown, it, it really showed what impact people are having on it. It's not, you, you can't question these, the issue of the pollution and the, the wildlife, et cetera, around the world. It's not just here. Uh, so it's, it, it made us stop and think about it. And I think we should be using that, that, that message that we've gotten through what's happened in lockdown going forward to to keep the environment and, and sustainability in front of mind for the long-term future of New Zealand. My own view, Vincent, is we're a think tank. We produce ideas. We produce questions. 
we're not going to produce the answers. The answers lie with all New Zealand having conversations on these issues. And what we were trying to do in these reports is trigger conversation, whether it's on a marae or whether it's in the beehive, those, those conversations are important because there does need to be a consensus about where New Zealand goes, not over the next three years, which is a matter of the electoral cycle, but over the next 20, 30 years. We know or we think that if we extrapolate from the, the Great Depression, the First World War, the Second World War, that leads in those kinds of big inflection points, lead to periods of reflection out of which substantive change occurs. It would be a tragedy if we just rush to business as usual uh, and don't actually take opportunity of this inflection point, which I sense many New Zealanders and indeed many people around the world say it's time to do so after you know, the 70 years after the Second World War, where there hasn't been any really great substantial rethinking on everything from the structure of the multilateral system through to the way to the to the, the way uh, neoliberal democracies operate. Mm. Well, that's a great time to uh, stop this discussion and start participating. If people want to read the report or they want to uh, participate in uh, Koitu, how do they get hold of of that, Anne? How do they get hold of you? Well, our website is www.informedfutures.org. Uh, we're easy to find there. Uh, our emails, you can email us directly. Uh, we, we are open to conversations with, um, with New Zealand. <laughs> That's fantastic. So Peter Gluckman and Anne Barsley, thank you for joining me on this climate business. Thank you. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.